آزادی بیان یعنون زیو فری سپیچ A lot of people argue that freedom of speech is um, a manifestly Western idea and very deeply rooted in philosophical tradition of liberalism. But you have studied Confucianism for, for quite a long time. Has the idea of freedom of speech ever been mentioned in the classics of Confucianism? And if so, what do the Confucian masters say about this, this topic? Well, um, you know, there's a critical spirit at the core of Confucianism, and it's more about the freedom to criticize bad policies of the rulers. So you have, in the Analects, there's a line about how one of the recipes for bad governments is if there's a bad idea by the ruler and nobody criticizes it. And in Manchester, it's also very clear that we have a moral obligation to, that ministers, I should say, have an obligation to remonstrate against the ruler. So the idea that people who are involved in government in some capacity or other have an obligation to criticize bad policies, I mean, I think that's quite central to the Confucian tradition. It's not a, a defense of free speech, as, let's say, in non-political spheres. You know, it's not a defense of free speech for... I mean, I think what Confucians would worry about in particular about, a, let's say, a liberal-style freedom of speech, namely that... Um, let's just use this John Stuart Mill's famous definition that I'm free to say what I want so long as it doesn't lead to kind of immediate physical harm. One is that there are certain things that most you know, reflective people would agree are, are morally bad, like think of you know, violent pornography. And from a Confucian perspective, you know, there's no good argument to allow for that freedom of speech. Having said that, Confucians prefer to rely first and foremost on what we can call soft power as a way of dealing with as a way of dealing with problems. So, if you have things like violent pornography that most people recognize is a moral evil, then the first you need you should re- resort on moral persuasion as some sort of um, example and ritual. And only at the very end, when all those means fail, do we invoke the harsh punishment of the law to prevent it. We also have to ask who has the freedom to criticize the bad policies of the ruler. I mean, I think most Confucians until recently had in mind that it was um, the ministers and or maybe the general, you know, what we can call today the, the intellectuals rather than the ordinary citizens. Because one thing that's another core value of Confucianism is this idea that everybody should have an equal opportunity to be educated, but not everybody. In the Analects, there's a famous saying, which means in education there are no social classes, but not everybody emerges from this process with an equal ability to make morally informed political judgments. So there's going to be different kinds of people, some of whom are more reflective and critical and informed, and others who basically don't have much time or, or interest to engage in political debate. So the freedom of speech is more important for the first group. Now again, that doesn't justify clamping down on freedom of speech, but it might justify some more paternalistic model, for example, of, of the media. You know, I, I think Confucians wouldn't mind so much if there's public funding for media that has a specific task of doing things that the market doesn't do very well, like, for example, reporting on the plight of disadvantaged people or, or reporting on the interests of future generations, things that you know, market-based media doesn't do very well. So I, I think from a modern-day Confucian perspective, there might be room for some more paternalistic model of media, meaning a publicly funded media 
whereby the media has the task of doing things that the market doesn't do very well, things that are morally desirable, for example, reporting on the interests of disadvantaged or future generations. Um, but it would also allow for more private media to engage in criticism of the government, again, so long as it doesn't do things that are blatantly immoral, like reporting on, on, on violent pornography and such. So you're saying that in Confucianism, this is, this is more like an entitlement to, to criticize bad policies once you reach a certain level. It's, the, the, the freedom doesn't really extend to commoners. Well, it's true that those who have above-average moral and political ability have more of an obligation to criticize bad policies, and in some sense, they should have more opportunity to do so. But it doesn't translate into using harsh punishment to prevent others from engaging in freedom of speech unless it's things that are that there's a strong consensus in the community that they're immoral, like for example violent pornography, and the harsh punishment is the only way of preventing the dissemination of those things. So so that's what I would say. And I would also strongly you know suggest that I think there there is going to be a paternalistic model of the media and of government in societies with a Confucian culture. And that's not necessarily uh, a bad thing. A again, it, it doesn't mean that there's no freedom of speech, but it means that there might be extra resources or funding given to certain type of institutions or people who have a moral obligation to engage in a certain type of speech, especially one that's critical of government policies. Also in Confucianism, we, we, we can find some kind of uh, ethical perfectionism. That Confucian scholars think that their ideas are the perfect ones, and any perspectives that are at odds with them would be seen as heresies. Do you think that's the case? Um, I don't think, first of all, that Confucians have this view that they're perfect. I mean, I think one core aspect of Confucian ethics is that there's a constant quest for self-improvement, and that we n never reach the stage where we have this perfect grasp of, of moral truths. I mean, even Confucius, who's supposed to be the model, it's only when he was seven years old, that according to the his brief uh, uh, autobiographical uh, uh, description in the Analects, it's only when he was seven years old that he reached the stage where what his heart desired correspond to what he ought to do from a moral point of view. So for the rest of us, there's always going to be, we're always going to learn, we're always going to improve, and we always have to allow for the revision of our views. So we have, always have this constant quest for self-improvement. So the idea that we could have perfect knowledge of the good, I think, is quite foreign to confusion. It's, it's not like we're, for example, a Christian tradition where there's a sudden illumination of faith and now I have the faith or I don't. I don't think Confucianism is like that. It's through participation in diverse roles, which change as we age. It's through deepening one's participation in particular roles that we improve. You know, and everybody in China knows this saying that when there's three people, one of them is always our teacher. You know, so this is this when we're in a group, we're always learning new things. Okay. So in other words, we can't be sure of the truth, but we can be more sure of what's morally bad. So this goes to your point about heresies. I think it's Confucians might have you know, more certain knowledge of what's morally bad, for example, violent pornography, and might be more willing to use punishment to prevent that sort of thing from being disseminated. But again, only as a last resort, only when self-power fails do we invoke harsh punishment. What about different other different schools of thought, for example, Taoist and legalist. They seem to have a very strong anti-intellectual and absolutist kind of tendency. Yeah. Are they perhaps 
less accommodating to the concept of free speech? Well, certainly legalism. I mean, for legalism, you have to unify the, the aim of, at least in Hanfeid's version of legalism, if you want to use that word to describe his thought, the main aim of politics is to strengthen the state, and that means to have harsh punishments that really control the details of everyday life, as well as to as to not allow an intellectual class to put forward uh, different ideas. You know, so of course the first emperor, you know, Qin Shi Huangdi, famously buried the Confucian scholars alive. So his his aim was, and maybe it was just a temporary aim in chaotic times. I mean, that's a charitable interpretation. But certainly in in chaotic times, when there's a need to unify the state, then the legalists would not allow for any form of free speech, including criticism of of, of the government, So, so long as people stick to their assigned roles. That's what they're supposed to do. Now, Taoism is a bit different because it's much more of a kind of apolitical ethic, you know, which really involves withdrawal from large-scale society. So indirectly, you could you could derive a norm of you know laissez-faire, including lack of interference of, of, of speech. But it's not a very strong defense of free speech in a modern society. And moving to the ten draft principles we have proposed, which one of them do you think would be most problematic to Confucianism? Well, again, I mean, I think the three about open and diverse media is very good, but I think Confucians would want to allow for publicly funded media to, let's say, to almost disseminate values that are not going to survive well in in a kind of free market, like reporting on the interests of future generations and and, and disadvantaged people. So I think it's fine to have open, diverse media, but I think Confucians would also allow for a more paternalistic model of the media. About no taboos in discussion, again, I think Confucians would, again, they're not sure about what's, what's morally good, but they're more sure about what's morally bad. And if there are, you know, uh, openly racist or, or some open uh, denigration of religion in, in discussion, I don't think Confucians would have such a... And, and if it's likely to lead to, to some form of harm, moral and maybe even physical, then I don't think Confucians would have... A strong objection to it. You know, I'm from Canada, where there's it's not like where there's uh, restrictions against hate speech. I don't think it would be nearly as problematic. I think Confucians might be more inclined to kind of a Canadian model than to uh, American model, where there's literally no taboo so long as it doesn't lead to uh, immediate physical harm. I, I, I think the uh, you know slurs on our reputation. Again, I mean, Confucians wouldn't would want to. They would worry if there's a, a kind of dominant model of the media whereby people who have established reputations because of their good deeds are constantly put on the defensive. I mean, it doesn't mean that that those slurs should be banned, but it might mean that part of the paternalistic model of the media might involve reporting on positive examples of public figures or ordinary citizens who do morally valuable deeds that wouldn't otherwise get reported in a privately funded media where bad news is good news, usually. Um, I think this brings us to the, the question of universal value. Some people in Asia said there should be a set of Asian values and that Western values as universal values. And they say that Asian people would more likely to accept restrictions on free speech that are perhaps unjustifiable in the West in order to protect public interest or common good. What would you think of it? Well, I mean, I, I, this whole idea of Asian values is a pretty dubious idea because Asia is such a diverse place. And I'm not sure if people who 
live in predominantly Buddhist uh, countries and those who live in societies with a Confucian background or those who live in Indonesia, which is predominantly Muslim, all, all have common set of values, not to mention India. So I, I don't like this idea. But the critical point that, you know, that values that emerged in Western societies are not necessarily universal. I mean, of course, I think that there's a point to that. You have to investigate, see which, see which values are prioritized in different contexts, and, and if there's a strong commonality, then, we, only then it seems to me we're on more solid grounds to assert that they're universally shared values. So I think it is true that some societies that give very strong priority to the freedom of speech, like the U.S., of course it's in the Constitution, the First Amendment, more generally giving priority to civil and political liberties, that might not be the case in, in societies. For example, I think in China, it's again, you could look at you know, polling data to support this view, but there, there's a much stronger priority placed upon poverty alleviation as, as the first concern of government. And if there is, in fact, a conflict between that goal and freedom of speech, which there isn't necessarily, in fact, sometimes the freedom of speech is important to criticize abuses by powerful and, and, and rich uh, officials. But if there is a conflict, then I think it might be less problematic in China than, than in the U.S. But it's an empirical question. And I think most of the time, I think a critical media is important. To, I mean, in China now, there's a hu- as, as you know, there's a huge gap between rich and poor. And, and I think a critical press that investigates abuses by corrupt officials and publicizes them is absolutely crucial to dealing with the problems. So there's no, there's no. So if we think that poverty alleviation and reducing the gap between rich and poor is a central concern of the government, I think I think more freedom of political speech and a more critical media is, is an important way of dealing with that. But just in the abstract, if there's a conflict, you know, between poverty alleviation and freedom of speech, then I think in China, you know, people will be more inclined to say that poverty alleviation should have priority. I mean, it's, it's not just a communist thing, you know, uh, it, it, the, the right to food. It, it, it goes way back to the Confucian idea of government, that we, the, the government has a very strong obligation to, to alleviate material uh, deprivation because it's hard to be moral in the sense of concern with other people's interests outside the family if you live in, a, in dire poverty. You know, the early Confucians strongly affirmed that the very first obligation is to, of the government is to deal with poverty, and only then can we begin to educate and think about moral improvement of the people. For example, the Chinese government would argue for restrictions on free speech on, for example, social order or um, national security. Do you think that can be justified? Obviously, they, they have mixed motives, and sometimes if the point of you know, restricting speech is to protect um, the interests of the leaders of the uh, Communist Party, then I think from a Confucian point of view, that's absolutely un- unjustified. I mean, the, as mentioned, it's core to Confucianism is this critical spirit that we have to have openness, at least in terms of political speech, so that mistaken policies can be corrected. Which Are you seeing this in, a, in more like a Berlin's positive freedom? Like um, we should be able to do something like to advance certain ethical values with free speech. Well, I, I guess for Berlin, uh, obviously he was very critical of, of positive freedom, but I guess there are two forms of positive freedom. One is a more kind of Republican idea that crucial to cell development is Republicanism and strong participation in politics, and that we only we only become fully human when we are fully political individuals. And I think Confucians 
would have a problem with that, saying that you know politics is not for everybody. You know, it's it's and public participation is not for everybody, and it's probably always going to be a minority of people. And and for them, you know, maybe it's important to first strongly affirm their duty to participate. In, in government and to criticize mistaken policies and two there might be room for special for resources given to those people to promote values that wouldn't survive very well in, in a free market um, but the other idea of, of positive freedom you know that we have this that we're only free when we are rational I, I think Confucians have a much more emotional view of, of the good that in, you know the good life involves first of all it's constant self-improvement you know as, as mentioned we're more sure of what's bad than of what's good and secondly it's not a, a kind of thing that we settle upon, you know, moral principles. Then we have the truth. It's much more, it's much more through emotional engagement with our relationships and with our roles that, that we become fully human. And it's hard to specify in some sort of rational way what that means. So, so I think there are important differences between Berlin's account of positive freedom. If, if we mean freedom to, you know, self uh, self determination, like one is only free when we're rational, and freedom and self determination in the political sense that we're only free when we're when we're fully democratic and participate in the community. I think with both those senses, Confucians would have a bit of a bit of a problem. You have been working in China for quite a few years, but you were recent in, in the West. Have you encountered any problems with free speech in China, for example, in your research or lecturing or publishing? Oh yeah, <laughs> often. <laughs> Can you give um, some the um, the teaching is much more free than one might expect. I mean, the only thing I was told not to teach is Marxism because, as you know, Marxism is the official ideology in China. And my interpretation of Marxism, which actually I picked up at Oxford through studies with J. Cohen, would be very different than the official interpretation. So I was told, you can teach human rights, democracy, whatever, but, but just don't, if you teach Marxism, you'd get in trouble. So, but even then, over the years, so I don't have a course called Marxism, but I teach a lot of Marx, Marxist ideas and, and give lectures about Marxism and so on. That's fine. In English, they don't care what I publish, you know, whether it's, it's in the popular media or in, in my books and so on. But in Chinese, you know, again, you can publish in Taiwan and Hong Kong and the internet is much more free. But it's hard, it's, the challenge comes to publishing, especially, well, in, in my case, some of my books, when, when they've been accepted for, for translation, but there's every publisher in China has to have a party guy who signs off and takes responsibility for the content. So not surprisingly, they become quite nervous about things that might be politically sensitive. So, so yeah, so some of my books have been pretty severely censored. And sometimes I've taken a very long time to get approved for translation. So that's where I encounter the most severe you know, censorship, so to speak, is publishing in Chinese with an official... And, and what are these problems? Like, what, what issues are... Well, a lot of my work has to do with the importance of Confucianism and how, you know, how the government itself might benefit from moving, it, not abandoning communism, but moving fr from communism and adopting an important aspect of uh, Confucian ethics and... That's very uh, politically sensitive to affirm in a straightforward way. I've written, too, about the importance of legalizing uh, prostitution, and that, that has been censored. So, And sometimes I write op-eds and comments, and those are often censored. But when they censor without my permission, then I, then I no longer deal with that newspaper. Usually the editors are on my side, you know, and, you know, so we negotiate and compromise and find something that's, that's acceptable. But if they want cuts, I really undermine my main argument, then of course I just say forget about it, I'm not publishing.